Church, Andover Campus, in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Endless love. Y'all laugh. Tell me you don't get a little misty when that song comes on. Uh, if you want a little sappier, like silly little love songs. Uh, but the best of love songs is the power ballad. Let Whitney Houston come on with just if I in that first chord. I, I see you nodding your head over there. I mean, this, total eclipse of the heart. That comes on. I'm probably crying in the car if I'm by myself. Love songs have a way of capturing our emotions through the emotions of the writer, through the performance of the musicians. They use uh, vivid imagery, strong emotions, and extremes to tell a story, to invite you to understand love between one person and another. Uh, love songs are, are about the best there are. Sometimes I turn them up in the car really loud and just drive down the road. My wife laughs at me so hard because she wants to listen to Hamilton, but uh, like half our wedding reception playlist was these power ballad love songs. Today's text is a love song. Today's text uses vivid imagery, extreme examples, uh, and passion to tell a story. Uh, the author doesn't even like try to mince words. He literally tells us, let me sing for my loved one, a love song from his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it, cleared away its stones, planted it with excellent vines, built a tower inside it, and dug out a wine vat in it. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten grapes. So now you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done for it? When I expected to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? Now let me tell you what I'm doing to my vineyard. I'm removing its hedge so it will be destroyed. I'm breaking down its walls so it will be trampled. I'll turn it into a ruin. It won't be pruned or hoed, and thorns and thistles will grow up. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the plantings in which God delighted. God expected justice, but there was bloodshed. Righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. Absolutely a love song, but not all love songs end with the guy getting the girl. They don't always end happy. Actually, some of the most powerful ones are the ones where you get to the end and you realize things didn't work out. Garth Brooks has a song, The Thunder Rolls, and it's just the most like heart-wrenching uh, description of how love didn't work out one time. God is singing a love song and is brokenhearted. God says that he's the vine dresser, Israel is the vineyard, and the people are the plantings. He has built this great vineyard. He has put a hedge up around it. He's uh, watered it and done the best things. What more could I do? I've given everything to this field. This should be like award-winning grapes. It should be the best that could possibly come out. And instead of good grapes, we get rot. 
what could I have done differently? And so he says, I'm going to remove the hedge. I'm going to uh, stop the reins. I'm going to let basically you go where you've been trying to go. You've been wild and rogue and you've been producing this bad stuff. It's almost cruel for me to keep going. I did the very best. What more could I do? I've been thinking about the story of A Christmas Carol by uh, Charles Dickens and the scene where uh, Jacob Marley comes to Ebenezer Scrooge at night to paint a picture of what uh, Scrooge's life might look like. He comes bound up in shackles, his mouth held together with burial cloths and, and uh, unclenches his jaw. The George C. Scott version is particularly powerful of this movie. Um, it's actually a book, I know that, but it's a movie too. Um, <laughs> fair enough. Um, to paint this scene of if, if Scrooge continues living like he's living, this is what death will look like for him. This is the natural end of your life, Ebenezer. And the whole rest of the movie is him trying to not have the same end as Jacob Marley. The natural consequences of the life he was leading looked abysmal. Marley tries to warn him, and he changes. The prophets have been warning Israel, and they don't change. And so there is a natural trajectory for their actions. They've been trying. They've been wild. They've been producing terrible grapes, and God is going to let it happen. Uh, a number of us have been engaging a work by the mother of Dylan Klebold, one of the Columbine shooters. Um, in there, there's a particular part where she talks about hearing the news of what was going on and knowing that he was one of the shooters and praying that he would be safe and then realizing that her probably best prayer is that he wouldn't be safe, that by praying for him to be safe, he's going to continue killing these other people and that really things need to go to their end. That doesn't make her love any less for her son. But to let that go to its natural end was the right thing. And that's what God says he's going to do in this scenario with Israel. He's going to let things go to their end, that they continually reject the call to have a different, different trajectory. They reject the call to bear good fruit, to turn their hearts to God. So he's going to let this vineyard go wild. He's going to remove the hedge of protection. We know that in Israel's story, this means that they actually go into captivity, that uh, Babylon comes on the scene and they actually lose all the covenant promises. They're no longer really a nation. They don't have a land. They're not a people. Surely they're not blessed anymore. And they're sent to be dormant. An entire generation in the land of Babylon. It's like a field that, uh, uh, if you've done any farming, eventually if you just keep doing the same thing over and over, it just can't produce and you have to just stop and let it go. Let it have a season of rest and let something different happen. Uh, sometimes we do crop rotation, but uh, some of the best is just to let the land rest and then start back over. And God says, we're doing that. Israel's going to go into exile. Israel's going to spend time with the natural end of all their actions. The only command to the reader of the text today is to judge. Judge between me and my vineyard. God has laid out this love song as a case. Am I right to have done this? I couldn't do any more. Literally, I've done the very best and they still produce rotten grapes. Judge between me and my people. Judge between the vine dresser and the vineyard. 
He expects us to look at the picture and go, you're right, God. This is almost cruel to keep this going. Let it go to its end and let's try something new. And so he does. I love that uh, centuries later, Jesus picks up the same metaphor uh, as he begins to talk to the people. In Mark chapter 12, we read, Jesus spoke to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a tower. Then he rented it to a tenant farmer and took a trip. When it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. But they grabbed the servant, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the landowner sent another servant to them, but they struck him on the head and treated him disgracefully. He sent another one. That one they killed. The landlord sent many other servants, but the tenants beat some and killed others. Now the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly. He sent him last, thinking, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to each other, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They grabbed him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's exactly what God does. God ends this Israel experiment. The field is now the entire world. The plantings are no longer just Israel. It's all of humanity. And the vine dresser isn't just Yahweh out there. It's God enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. He keeps the same metaphor, but everything changes. He invites the church to bear fruit, to be the very best that he can give, to uh, experience the blessings of the farmer. He builds, he builds the hedge around it. He waters it. He tends it. And he did it up close and personal when he got enfleshed. But it doesn't become a new vineyard that has uh, different expectations. It's not just a tourist site. They didn't pave over it and make a strip mall. They expect it to still make grapes, right? God still demands fruit from his vineyard. Uh, In Luke 6, we read from Jesus, A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit, nor does a bad tree produce good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. People don't gather figs from thorny plants, nor do they pick grapes from prickly bushes. A good person produces good from the good treasury of the inner self, while an evil person produces evil from the evil treasury of the inner self. The inner self overflows with words that are spoken. Fruit is language all throughout the New Testament. Uh, You'll know a a tree by its fruit. We're going to cut off trees that have bad fruit. We're going to graft in vines that have new fruit. Uh, VBS, we just talked about the fruits of a spirit are not a coconut. But there are peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I was listening, Trish. I know the song. Um, I don't know all the dance moves. Y'all don't want to see that. But fruit is a pretty big deal in the New Testament because God didn't decide that he didn't want his people to bear fruit. He didn't just give us a pass. Go bear whatever you want. Actually, he says, bear fruit. Bear good fruit. And so I ask you, Do you bear fruit? Is it good fruit? Is it rotten fruit? Does the church bear fruit, both locally and globally? 
at least a number of studies would say that uh, people who are outside of the church don't see the fruit of the church. But they see some rot inside of it. I think they're missing the beauty that is the church, but I think we need to pay attention to what people are seeing. What kind of fruit does God expect from you and I? This whole series has been called Measured Against the Standard, where what we've tried to do is reframe this giant set of expectations of we have to do this, we have to be perfect, we have to do all the right things, we have to follow a million laws, to reframe it to understand that what we have to do is allow God to take control of our heart. That the judgment of the prophets wasn't a judgment for violating one of 462,000 different laws, it was a judgment for a heart oriented away from God. A heart whose worship was uh, nothing better than tokenism and a heart who didn't turn to love of neighbor. This whole series has been inviting us to examine our hearts, to allow God to take control of them, that we might love him, love neighbor, and that we might bear fruit, that through his spirit we might have those very fruits of the spirit. I can't be peacemaker all the time on my own. That is not my natural disposition. Frankly, joy is not my natural disposition if I'm not inviting God to take control of my heart. I'm, I'm fairly, uh, kindness, goodness, gentleness. I think I'm pretty good on my own, but you know, some of these I'm going to fail at abysmally if it's on my own volition, on my own strength. The older I get, the more I realize that uh, I can bear fruit some days on my own, but most days I won't, and that I have to find a regular rhythm of inviting God to take control of my heart, to fill me with his spirit that I might bear fruit and good fruit. So I ask you, are you bearing fruit? And if so, what type? And as a church, are we bearing fruit? And if so, what type? Because God's love song continues. It didn't end here. Judge between me and my vineyard. Are we a vineyard that produces good fruit that God can delight in and say, look, I've done the right things. I've poured into them and they bear good fruit. Or are we a vineyard that bears rot? If so, there's a lot better ways we can spend our time, right? Uh, we, we could be a great social club. We could do lots of activities. But if we're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, if we are loving God and loving others, we are a force unstoppable and people will look and see our God and know that he is good. Judge between the vine dresser and the vineyard. Friends, are you bearing fruit? And if so, is it good or rotten? I think that's what I gotta leave you with. And that's what I leave myself with as we head out of this series is day after day. Invite the Holy Spirit to take hold of your heart that we're properly oriented, that then we measure ourselves against the right standard, not up against a set of legalistic, unmeetable expectations that we might bear fruit that delights our God and that others might see him because of us. Would you pray with me? Loving God, you're an incredible vine dresser. You have planted beautifully and tended with great care. And in the most stunning example of your care, you took on flesh. You gave us an example of what it means to love God and love others. 
You suffered on the cross for us and died. You were raised from the dead and gave us your spirit as the greatest source, the greatest source of hope and the greatest source of power, the greatest source of the very fruit you wish us to bear. So fill us full with your spirit. Orient our hearts to you and you alone. Release from us the burden of legalistic perfectionism, of having to do everything ourselves. May we experience your light yoke, and may we bear good fruit. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen and amen.